The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Chapter 4. We've been studying through the book of Acts chapter by chapter, and uh, as I've said a few times, Acts is what it looks like when the power of God is unleashed through His people, the church. And it's almost, you know, the book of Acts is, is a gift to us because it helps us to see the roots of, of our faith, the roots of this Christian movement. Um, we get to see in the book of Acts what pure, unadulterated Christianity looks like. By the time we get into the letters, uh, you know, Galatians and, and Colossians and things like that, uh, it, there's course correction going on, right? The Galatians are trying to add Jewish faith back into their Christianity. The Colossians are sort of syncretists and are, and are blending other kinds of religions in, and Paul's having to, to course correct. But in the book of Acts, we get to see it in its rawest, purest form. And that's a gift to us because we can then look at pure, unadulterated Christianity and compare it to our own Christianity, and understand, have we taken anything away from the faith? Have we added to the faith? And how do we kind of square ourselves back with what God intended as these early Christians were, were on mission for the glory of Jesus? It's no more important I don't, a question I don't think that we can ask in this season is, uh, how does our faith match up with uh, what we see in the book of Acts, right? The, the pure, unadulterated form of following Jesus, because what we see in Acts is what all of us want deep down. Every follower of Jesus deep down wants these things. We want a vital, life-giving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We want life-giving, vital relationship with one another as the church, and we want the power of God's Spirit to, to help us to live on mission for Him in the world. That's what every follower of Jesus really, really wants, and that's what we see in the book of Acts. So today, we're going to see the first taste of opposition that the early church receives, specifically Peter and John. And we're going to see them respond to this opposition with with a God-given boldness. And it caused me to think as I was studying this week, what's the boldest thing you've ever done? What's the most courageous, boldest step you've ever taken? Uh, Some of you may have heard this story recently. I think it was back Sunday, May the 6th. Uh, up in Maryland, there was a car crash on a bridge going over the sound, uh, and a, a truck had rolled over and ended up kind of hanging off the edge of the bridge. And as one man who was involved in the accident came to the scene, uh, he, he noticed, looked down into the water, there was a car seat that had been ejected from the vehicle and had landed into the ocean. And without thinking, this man jumped 30 feet off this bridge into the ocean, and by that time saw the little child who uh, had flipped over onto her stomach and was taking in water and starting to sink. And he was able to grab her and hold her up high and, and pat her back until she spit out water. And, and she's alive today because of his boldness, because of his courage. His name's uh, Jonathan Bauer, and he must be related to Jack Bauer because uh, he just jumps without thinking. But as I thought about that story, I thought, you know, c- could we do that? Like, do we have it within us to act boldly when everything is on the line. That's what we're going to see today as we look through uh, Acts chapter 4. So uh, I'm going to read for us these first 22 verses 
uh, it's a lot, I realize, but let me read them for us, give us some context for what's going on here, and then we'll come back and, uh, and, and make some observations as we look at these 22 verses in Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, uh, they will be on the screen behind me here, screens, uh, and you can follow along that way, but I hope you got it in your hands. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. You guys ready to study the Word? All right. And as they were speaking, that's Peter and John, to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which, men, by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave their council... They conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to uh, to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, we thank you that we are able to gather freely as your people. We thank you that uh, you are with us by your spirit. Uh, we thank you that uh, even though more and more people are feeling confident and comfortable coming and worshiping in person, there are still many who are on the cautious side, and that is okay. We're thankful that we can minister to them continually through uh, the live stream and technology, but we do long for the day when we can all be gathered together uh, in the same room, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Lord, today as we look at this uh, chapter 4 in the book of Acts, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would help us all to see and hear clearly. Lord, that you would minister to us, that you would help me to rightly divide this word so that it blesses your people and that you would speak to us by your spirit through your word. 
and minister to us in unique ways as we look at this text. We love you, and we thank you for this opportunity, and we ask this blessing in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. So last week, if you were with us, what we saw in chapter 3 was Peter and John are heading up to the temple. They're just going to pray. It's the hour of prayer. The Jews prayed three times a day, still do, uh, and this was the middle hour. It was the, the ninth hour, which was about 3 p.m. So they're heading up to the temple to pray. They're not looking to minister. They're not looking to do anything, but they see this lame beggar at the gate, at the entrance to the temple, and he's asking for alms. He's asking for money, and they say to him, hey, look, we don't have any money. We don't have silver or gold, but what we do have, we give to you. And in the name of Jesus, be healed. And suddenly, this man who's been lame his entire life gets up and walks, okay? As you can imagine, that draws a crowd. Uh, You know, this man was known. He had been at this gate for for ages, for his entire life, uh, begging for alms. They knew no one expected him to be healed. No one expected him to ever walk, much less, you know, be doing a triple lutz in the temple grounds, right? So so there's a crowd gathering here. Now, Peter and John, I don't think, ever made it to the hour of prayer uh, because Acts 3 tells us they went up about 3 p.m. Look at verse 3 here. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So that's probably around 6 p.m., the, the last hour of prayer. So, so catch this. This wasn't like a, a, a flash mob. Okay, when, when Peter and John heal this man... Uh, a few people are gathered. Peter proclaims the gospel. Some more people gather. They're like, as they come in, they're like, wait, isn't that the cardboard sign guy by the gate? Yes, and he's healed. And they proclaim to them. And the crowd grows a little bit larger, a little bit larger, a little bit larger, all day long for hours and hours and hours, and now it's evening. So as this crowd grew, so did the controversy. If you're a note taker, that's my first point, the growing controversy. These religious leaders are watching and, and they're probably looking at this crowd, seeing it grow, and they're going, well, it'll disperse soon enough. Like people were going to get to prayer time and go on about their day. And the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And suddenly there are thousands of people gathered. And, and finally the religious leaders are saying, okay, this is enough. We, we got to cut this thing out. Now, look back at the text here. You see in verse 1, you've got uh, the priests the captain of the temple, who was kind of the second in charge of the priest, but he was also like the, the, the captain of the police, the temple police. <clears throat> and then this group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were wealthy. Uh, they were powerful. They were the leaders. The high priests came from the Sadducees. But theologically, they were also the more liberal uh, of, of the Jews. Um, they only believed in the first five books of Moses. And so if Moses didn't say it, they didn't believe it. So they didn't believe, for instance, in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. Uh, They didn't believe uh, in the resurrection from the dead. And they certainly didn't believe in Jesus. Well, now they got a problem. Because the risen Jesus has performed a miracle through these men, you know, in the temple. And and all the things they don't believe in have happened. So what does the text tell us? Many people were amazed by this miracle that had happened, but these leaders are greatly annoyed. (laughs) In other words, they're disturbed. They're irritated. They're provoked. Um, In our modern parlance, they're triggered. And they're going to cancel this thing, right? 
And this tells you, this is emotional, their reaction. It's not logical. It's not, uh, they haven't really thought through it. It's an emotional response. They don't like what's happening and they want to put it to a stop. And that's all cancel culture is, right? It's not logical. It's not thoughtful. It's, it's emotional. It's primitive. We don't like it and we want to stop it. We're like little kids in the sandbox, right? And someone says or does something that we don't like and we want to push them out of the sandbox. And that, we put fancy language to it today, but that's all cancel culture really is. I don't like what you said. It triggered me. I'm, you're dead to me. And so that's what they're trying to do. So what do they do? They come and arrest them. They arrest them. That'll cancel it. That'll stop it. And they put them in custody until the next day because it was evening. So the, the council that's going to meet doesn't meet until the next day. So they need to keep him in jail overnight. But watch what God does. Verse 4, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Try to cancel the movement of Christ all you want. God's going to do what God's going to do. Amen? So this movement goes from 3,000 to 5,000, even though the religious leaders are very perturbed at what's happening. God's still going to do what God's going to do. He, he saves another 2,000 plus people. So the next day, they come before this council, which is called the Sanhedrin, or the Sanhedrin if you're pretentious and went to seminary. Um, they are gathered, and, and there are 71 of them, they're made up of the uh, Pharisees, which are a different sect of, of uh, Jews who really don't believe what the Sadducees believe. So they're at odds with each other. They don't even like each other, uh, except that they, what they have in common is they don't like Jesus. <laughs> uh, you've got the scribes, you've got uh, the Sadducees, you've got the high priest and all his family who are gathered. This is the very same group who convicted and condemned Jesus in a sham trial. And now a couple months later, here are Peter and John standing before this same group. And they would meet basically in a horseshoe configuration, all 71 of them, Peter and John being in the middle. Now you've got to think, there's a little anxiety going on in Peter and John in this moment, right? We know what happened to Jesus, um, and this could not go well for us. This could go real bad, okay? They condemned him, they, they sent him, uh, convicted him, and sentenced him to death. The same could happen to us. So they bring them before them, and then what's their question? Look at verse 7. They're not asking, they're not denying the healing, they're not questioning the healing, they're not even asking, how can we get in on this? How can we participate in this? What's their question? By what power or what name did you do this? It's all about power. It's all about control. So, wouldn't it be good news to know that God is still alive and at work in the world and he's still healing and blessing people right now. Well, not if you're the ones in power and not if you're the ones that rejected Jesus. See? As Jesus' followers are gaining momentum, these religious leaders see that they're losing it. As Jesus' movement is gaining followers, they see that they're losing followers. They are going to lose power. They're going to lose control and they do not like it. You have to know this. When powerful people do not care about logic and justice because it's not useful to them, you can expect intimidation. And if you haven't experienced that in your life yet, you will. It's how the world works. Sadly, it's how the church world works sometimes. It's how the religious world works. These men are the guardians of the Torah, of God's word. But this new power is threatening the powers that be. And so 
they're trying to use tactics to, to squash it. Now, let that be a lesson to us, okay? Let, let us never, as followers of Jesus, let us never, as the church, act this way. We cannot serve God while using the tactics of the enemy of God. And there's a lot of, sadly, what I, what I observe in evangelicalism these days is a, is a grasp for power and control because we've been used to it as the church in America, and now we're losing favor, and we don't like it. And so we're scrambling for power rather than trusting in the one who is all-powerful. But also know this. When you walk with Jesus, when you stand for Jesus, when you proclaim Jesus, it will cause controversy. You will face opposition. We'll see why in a little bit. But Jesus promised this to us. Jesus says to us in John 15, uh, if they hated me, guess what? They're going to hate you too. You're guilty by association. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Darkness hates the light. And the darker the culture, the darker the world, the brighter the light shines, but the more of a target it is. So brothers and sisters, let's prepare ourselves. Let's expect people are going to oppose our message. But let's not, let's not fight back. Let's love them. Let's do what God has called us to do by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ because we know that's the only power that can save and heal. But let's not be surprised when we face opposition. So we see here this growing controversy, and it's only going to get worse as we go through the book of Acts. But secondly, I want you to see this. The godly courage that God gives to Peter. Godly courage, that's point two. Look at verse eight with me. So they ask this question, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus the Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now let's stop there. Godly courage. Peter is filled afresh with the power of the Holy Spirit. He's empowered for this new opportunity to proclaim the truth of the gospel to these religious leaders. And don't you love the contrast we see in the scriptures with Peter? You know, before the cross, Peter was impetuous, right? He always spoke first. He reacted. You know, he's cutting that guy's ear off. Hello. You know, it's that whole thing. Um, but he was a coward at the end of the day. He was so much of a coward, even though he said, Lord, I'll die with you, right? That when a little girl, a little girl asks him, aren't you with Jesus? What does, he get? what does he do? No, 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 not me. And he runs away. He's a coward. But now, ever since the resurrection, he is full of godly courage. And he's willing to stand before this very same council that condemned Jesus and to proclaim the truth to them. This is what Jesus prepared him for. Uh, let me read you a couple places out of the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke, of course, wrote the book of Acts and the gospel according to Luke. 
uh, and he wrote it to a man named Theophilus. So you have to imagine that as Theophilus is reading the book of Acts, there's some stuff ringing a bell to him from, from the gospel of Luke. And this is what Jesus says in the gospel according to Luke, chapter 12, verse 11. When they bring you before synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you shall say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what you ought to say. Then he goes on in chapter 21 and he gives a little bit more detail. Jesus says this to to his disciples. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You see that? Jesus prepared them. Hey, listen, this is going to happen. You're going to face hardship and persecution. You're going to stand before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. And don't worry about what you're going to say because in that moment, I'll give you words. So what words does he give Peter in this moment? Peter stands up, he opens his mouth, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, this healing, this healing, this divine blessing, you want to know where this comes from? It comes from Jesus, the Christ, the, the Messiah, the anointed one. You put him to death in your sham trial. Literally, you know, a couple weeks ago, he said, you put him to death. And he was speaking figuratively because all of us, by our sin and rebellion against God, have played a part in the crucifixion of Jesus. But here, he's speaking literally to the Sanhedrin, this very council that condemned Jesus. You put him to death. You did your worst. And God did one better. You handed him over to death, but God raised him from the dead. And he's alive, and he is well, and he is at work right now. He healed this man, and he can heal you too. (laughs) Then he quotes Psalm 118. This is where he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected. They would have known Psalm 118 very, very well. And he says, Jesus is that stone y'all rejected. He's actually the cornerstone. You see, in this day, uh, all the important buildings were built of these massive stones. And they would have to shape and chisel them to get them just right. You know, they didn't just glue them together with cement or whatever. They, they, they fitted them together. And to, for, to find the cornerstone, which was the, the foundational stone, you had to find one of the right density and the, the right sort of rock makeup, uh, the right size that could bear the weight of the structure. It had to be straight and level because everything else in the building was set in reference to that cornerstone. Today, cornerstones are more decorative, right? They don't really do anything, but at this time, they were literally foundational. And so he says, you, you know, painting this picture from Psalm 118, there's a big pile of stones and you guys are looking through them and you're like, let's toss that one out. It's no good. And that's actually the foundational stone. In other words, what he's saying to these religious leaders is, you have built your entire life and ministry on something that will not sustain the weight of it. Like, this is crazy. You guys have built your lives on, a, on, on something false, and all the while you miss Jesus, who's the real foundation. He says, you're supposed to have built your life on Jesus, not Abraham. Because what did Jesus say? Before Abraham was... I am. Not Moses. We saw this actually last week in Acts chapter 3. What did Moses say? After me, another prophet will come who is greater than I, and you should listen to him. (laughs) So, So these guys you've built, these patriarchs you've built your life on, 
you missed the foundation. You missed the cornerstone. His name is Jesus. He says, salvation is found in no one else. Now, they didn't ask him about salvation, did they? They just said, how'd you do this miracle? But Peter makes it about salvation. Because he's saying, this man's healing, the healing of this lame man, I told you this last week, is a picture of a greater healing that that is found only in the person and work of Jesus. So he says, there there is no other name under heaven by which we must, M-U-S-T, must be saved. And how do you think that went over? Not too good. It went over about like it goes over in our day. When you say Jesus is the only way to salvation, when you say there is no other name by which people can be saved than the name of Jesus, how does that go over in our world today? Not too good. People hate it. Why? Because we are, we are saying in those words, Everything you have built your life on, everything important to you that you have built your life on will ultimately crumble and fail if it isn't Jesus. When all the chips are down, right? In that moment, when everything is on the line, if you haven't built your life on Jesus, whatever you have built your life on is gonna end up hollow and it's going to fail you. People don't wanna hear that. They don't like that. It's threatening to them. We get accused all the time, believers do, right, of being arrogant and being narrow because we say there's only one way to God. But, but let, hear me, the real issue is not that there's only one way to God. Because if there were, if there were two ways to God, you know what we want? Three. <laughs> and if there were three, we'd want four. And if there were ten, we'd want twenty. Because the real issue is not that there's one way to God. The real issue is that we don't get to choose. We don't get to make our own way to God. So we want to be the authority. We, this world loves self-justification. Like every other, every other religion, every other spirituality, the, the way this world is built is all on performance-based acceptance. Do these things... And, this, and it'll go well for you. You'll be approved, accepted. You'll get this, you know, like whatever. It's a credit score system. That's the way the whole world works. And every other faith system and religion and spirituality works that way. But Jesus comes along and says, that whole system is a scam, bro. You need grace. And this world is radically opposed to salvation by grace alone. We hate it even though it is the best thing ever. (laughs) So while it may feel arrogant to say, I mean, listen, I would say this. Okay, if I'm wrong about Jesus and I've devoted my whole life to him and at the end of life I just die, I just died. Whatever. You know, I was a better person for it and then I died. But with all due respect... If you are wrong about Jesus and you die, you are wrong about everything important in your life forever. Forever. And where else but in Jesus can we find healing for the deepest parts of ourselves that are broken? Like 
Again, this whole thing is about this man who's been healed. He was lame, and now he's walking around and jumping and and leaping for joy. That is a picture of the gospel. As I said last week, all of us are the lame beggar, right? All of us are born disabled, unable to get to God. And even on our best day, even by our best works, the closest we can get is the gate of the temple. We cannot get in. We cannot get in on our own. We cannot get to the presence of God on our own. We require God to come to us. And Jesus does, in his mercy, come to us, bend down, look us in the eye, right? And say, hey, get up. And he heals us because it's his perfect, sinless life in our place. It's his sacrificial, substitutionary death in our place for all of our sin and all of our guilt and all of our wanting to be our own authority and all of our ignorance and obliviousness to God. It's Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his conquering of all of our real enemies of sin and death and hell. That's what matters. That's what heals us and brings us to life. It's salvation by grace alone. Jesus simply says, get up and walk. And it's what we all need. At the deepest parts of us, it brings healing to the brokenness at the very deepest parts of us. Now, I love this line. You guys hanging with me? Verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they, listen, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that line. To say they were uneducated common men doesn't mean they were hillbillies or hicks or ignorant, okay? It means they hadn't been to rabbinical school. They didn't have the degrees, right? They didn't have uh, any initials before their name. And yet, these brothers could handle the scripture like nobody's business, right? They, They had the same hermeneutic that Jesus did, that all the scriptures about Jesus. And they were astonished. They were perplexed at their boldness, their courage, and at their ability to handle the Bible. So that, that, that leads me to a question, okay? Because so, there's a difference between boldness and obnoxiousness, okay? Um, we're called to be bold, but not obnoxious. Uh, and sometimes I think we feel like we're being persecuted for our boldness when in fact we're just being obnoxious, and, and no wonder, okay? So here's the reality. Um, if we lean... All of us, everyone in the room in all churches, lean one way or the other, okay? Jesus is full of grace and truth. And we are called as his followers, as his disciples, to imitate our Lord and be full of grace and truth. But all of us uh, lean one way or the other. So some of us are all grace and no truth, which isn't really grace at the end of the day. And others of us are all truth and no grace, which at the end isn't really truth. It's truth and grace. These brothers, you could tell they'd spent time with Jesus they looked just like Jesus. They smelled just like Jesus. They talked just like Jesus. They imitated Jesus in everything that they did. Can anyone tell that you and I have been with Jesus? Are there things in our lives that people can look at and go, you've been with Jesus, haven't you? I hope they can answer that. I hope we can answer that in the affirmative. Now, last thing. Uh, I'm getting fired up, man. Here we go. I want you to see Peter and John's great conviction. We're going to look at verses 15 and following. Great conviction. 
When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, this is the Sanhedrin, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, I love this, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God. You see how they're putting them at odds with God? Judge for yourselves whether we should listen to you or God. You must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We'll stop there. Now, it struck me as I was studying this week. I had never seen this before. That's why I love the Bible, because you read it, and you read it, and you read it, and every time you see something different, something new. It's the same old word, you know? In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the gospel to this crowd, And after he preaches the gospel, they have a question, and their question is, what shall we do? And he says, repent and and be baptized, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. This time, Peter and John, John gets a lot of credit. He hadn't opened his mouth yet. Um, Just saying. But he writes letters later, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, whatever. So, uh, Peter preaches to this council, this Sanhedrin, and they have a question too. But what's their question? What shall we do about these men? (laughs) Do you see the pride? Do you see the arrogance? Do you see the stubborn unbelief of these men? They're hearing the same message. And rather than saying, what 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 must we do to be saved? They say, what are we going to do about these clowns? They cannot deny a miracle has happened. Like, I don't even know how you get here intellectually. They can't deny miracles happened. They know from their theology, miracles are works of God. And yet, so they can't deny that God is at work, yet they, re- they refuse to acknowledge that they actually might be on the wrong side of this thing. <laughs> that God actually might be at work in ways they can't quite understand. And rather than asking, hey, how, how do we get in on this thing? How do, how do we go where God's at work? They go, how do we shut this thing down? They, they refuse to consider that they might be the ones out of step with God. Now, there was a similar wrestle with Jesus, right? Jesus would perform miracles and they'd say, uh, you know, how did you do that? And he'd go, I don't know, tell me how did I do that? I'd put him in a corner and they'd go, well, we can't give credit to God because then we'll acknowledge it. We can't give credit to the enemy because that would be, you know, and he backed him into a corner on purpose. They're trying to stop this movement. They are, they are more concerned with keeping a tight lid on their predictable church going than they are about opening themselves up to what God might be doing in the world. And and again, let that be a lesson to us as the church, right? It, It is possible for us to end up opposing God when we think we're actually serving God. So we have to stay low. We have to stay humble, and, and have our eyes open for what God is doing in the world so that we might get in on that and not just oppose it out of hand because it's not the way we would do it. So they bring them back in and they say, all right, you're not allowed to speak in this name anymore, which I, I, it just shows you they know there's power in the name. Like Romans 1 says, it's, it's evident to all of us, but we're suppressing the truth, right? This is what they're doing. 
Don't tell anybody about it. Don't speak this name. Just keep it to yourselves, which is exactly what the world wants from us today, isn't it? Like we're, we're semi-okay with privatized faith, but don't you bring it to the public. We don't need to hear about how you love Jesus. You can even tell people that you're spiritual, you're religious, you go to church and they're fine, but as soon as you say the name of Jesus, things change. The tone in the room changes. People don't want us to have convictions. So there's a difference between belief and conviction. Belief, like you can believe whatever you want and it doesn't really affect your life, but if you have a conviction, it changes you. And right now the culture is kind of saying, we have a conviction that you're not allowed to have convictions. (laughs) So we have a choice, don't we? Here's my question. Why believe in anything that isn't worthy of giving your whole life for? doesn't make any sense. So Peter and John, they're before this council. There's a threat, there's pressure, and they go, okay, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to keep talking about Jesus because we cannot help but talk about what we have seen and heard. Now you tell us, you tell us if it's right to follow you or follow God, right? They're intentionally putting them in opposition with God, which is important because Peter's the same cat who says, honor every human institution. So if these men had given them a different order or command that wasn't opposed to what God wanted, they would have followed it. But because what they are telling them to do is opposed to what God says, they're going, we're going with God. We will, we will oppose you because we are with God, no matter what it costs us. We cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. They have firsthand experience here. That has changed them. This is not their opinion. This is not speculation. God revealed it. And they couldn't stay silent. They say, we we are going to keep talking about Jesus because he is the only one who lived a perfect, sinless, holy life that we could never live. And he lived it in, in our place. He's the only one who died a sinner's death in our place, taking all of our sin, shame, and guilt on himself. He's the only one who rose from the grave conquering sin, death, and hell for us. And he is today alive and well. He is Lord, God, Savior, Christ, and King. He is ruling and reigning. He will come back one day to judge the living and the dead. And we're going to follow him instead of you knuckleheads. Have at it. He's the only one worthy of giving our whole lives for. And all of these disciples will eventually, all these apostles will eventually give their lives. Peter, you know, church history says, was crucified upside down because he said to be crucified in the same manner of Jesus. He wasn't worthy of it, so they turned it upside down and crucified him upside down. The only one who wasn't martyred specifically was was John, who they tried and ended up exiling him to Patmos where he writes the book of Revelation. So um, we don't think like this. Because we're used to comfort and non-opposition. But the longer that we follow Jesus in this world, in this life, the more likely it is that we will face opposition. And, and again, we're used to, you know, favor in America. And it's, it's every day, every week, it's less and less that way. Our role is not to fight back so that we have our privileges. Our role 
is to love Jesus and to do what he tells us to do, no matter what comes. Now, last little question that occurs to me here. They let him go, by the way, which is crazy because there's no way to punish him because the disciples have the favor of all the people at this moment. Like they're jazzed about what God's up to. And so they, they can't eliminate them like they did Jesus. Over time, they were able to turn the tide against Jesus and everyone shouted, crucify him. But right now, public opinion is these disciples are awesome. So that if, if they were to execute them now, they would face opposition themselves. So you'll see over the course of the book of Acts, they will turn the tide and the apostles and the disciples actually run out of, uh, the disciples are run out of Jerusalem. The, the apostles actually stay, uh, but the church continues to explode in growth when, when the people are persecuted. Where did Peter get this kind of conviction? Because as we said before the cross, he was a coward, but suddenly after the cross, he's full of this courage and this conviction. I think, I'm going to say, I think, step away from Revelation here. Um, As I was thinking about this, I thought of two places, which we've talked about before. Luke chapter 5 and John 21. In Luke chapter 5, the Peter and his buddies have been out fishing all night, didn't catch a thing. They come in, Jesus gets in their boat, preaches a message, and then he's like, hey, let's go fishing. And they're like, we just did this, man, but okay, let's go. So they go out, and he goes, hey, did you ever try throwing the net on the other side of the boat? <laughs> Which I'd love, They're like, we're professional fishermen. You think we didn't try this? All right, whatever you say, Jesus. And they throw the net on the other side of the boat, and what happens? Fish galore, right? Just so many, the boat is sinking. And Peter, when he sees the, the holiness and the divinity of Jesus, what does he do? He looks away, and he says, depart from me, Lord. He's ashamed because he knows his best efforts, his works, are not acceptable. Like, he can't be in the presence of this holy God-man. Fast forward to John chapter 21. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Peter has seen the empty tomb, but he doesn't know where Jesus is. He's kind of confused. Peter has gone back to fishing with his cronies, and uh, they're fishing all night, didn't catch a thing. And they hear from the shore a voice, hey, you ever think about throwing the net on the other side of the boat? (laughs) And And he does it, and all of a sudden, tons of fish. The boat is sinking, right? Uh, and, and what does Peter do this time? Instead of turning away, depart from me, Lord, he takes off his outer garment, jumps in the water, and he swims to Jesus. And while they're at the fire, Jesus cooks some breakfast, and, you know, Jesus goes, hey, do you love me, Peter? He asks him three times, which is kind of like a little, you know, you denied me three times, I'm going to ask you three times, do you love me? Um, Jesus wouldn't do that. I would, but Jesus probably wouldn't. But he does. He asks him three times, do you love me? And when he says, you know I love you, Lord, he goes, okay, feed my sheep. He's commissioned. He experiences deep forgiveness for his denial of Jesus. And he's commissioned to be a pastor, to love and serve people and to feed the sheep. And I think that on his darkest days, Peter would have to revisit that moment do you love me? Feed my sheep. And, and that gave him that conviction, right? This is worth my life because Jesus said, feed my sheep. And I just, you know, I don't think Jesus has cooked any of us breakfast before, but um, do we have that kind of conviction? 
do we have that kind of deep conviction that this thing, this gospel thing, this mission of God is worth giving everything for? Because Jesus has given everything for me. So I got three questions I'm going to put on the screen here real quick, and then uh, we will pray, and uh, the band will come back up and lead us in song. But I, I want to I ask these, and then we'll leave them up for a few minutes. You can take a picture of the screen. You can write them down as they come, whatever you want to do. But I would encourage you to think through these uh, and to really take them before the Lord. So first question is this. What is one sign that people might recognize I have been with Jesus? So what, what is one thing going on in my life that if people looked at that, they go, you've been with Jesus, haven't you? Because, see, as we, as we meet with Jesus in his word and in prayer and with his people in corporate worship, he does this thing called sanctification, where he is growing us by his spirit, through his word, growing us into his likeness. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we are being transformed from one degree to another into the likeness of Christ. So is there, are there any signs? <laughs> and if so, what's just one sign that, that you could point to in your own life that you'd say, I think if people saw this, like they see this in me, they would recognize I've been with Jesus. If you don't have any, maybe you need to spend some more time with Jesus. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's important that we recognize, like we should be changing and growing. We should be becoming more like Jesus the, the, the longer in the faith that we are because we're in this word and we're in prayer and we're in worship and we're communing with the Lord Jesus and becoming more like him. Second question, where do I need courage to speak about Jesus to the people that he's placed in my life? Every one of us is called to be a witness. A witness simply testifies to what we've seen and heard. Every one of us has had, who are followers of Jesus, has had some experience of him kneeling down, looking us in the eyes, right, and saying, get up. We've been forgiven of sin. Some of us have been healed. Some of us have, have had radical encounters. Some of us, you know, it's been more like a dimmer switch. We just, over time, came to see more clearly that Jesus is Lord. But we're also all commissioned. So, so God has put people in all of our lives who don't know Jesus, and he's given us those relationships for a reason, that we might testify to who Jesus is. So, so where do I need courage? Because, you know, not all of us have that boldness, that courage. We're, we'll, we'll see next week uh, the disciples pray for more courage to be able to proclaim who Jesus is. Where do I need courage? Is there one relationship I need God to give me courage? And, and, and some of us don't have courage because we never ask him for it. So, so we're, where do I need courage to speak about Jesus to people in these places in my life? And then lastly, how can resting in and reflecting on what Jesus has done for me strengthen my conviction and my resolve to be a witness for him? Again, I think it was Peter resting in and reflecting on that moment by the fire that gave him the conviction and resolve to keep going on his darkest of days. Because he knew that he knew that he knew that he knew that Jesus was alive and well and had forgiven him and commissioned him. And, and you and I might not have a campfire moment, but how can resting in and reflecting on the gospel, on the good news of what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection for us to forgive us of sin, to save us from hell, to give us a new life and a new family, how can that strengthen our conviction and give us uh, a greater resolve to be his witnesses in the world? Let me pray for us, and then uh, the band is invited to come back up, lead us in a couple songs, and then we will get out of here. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for 
uh, your faithfulness to us through your word. Thank you for the book of Acts, uh, which has been such a blessing to us to, to challenge us, to challenge us to, to be bold for you, uh, to, to put our faith into action. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would just be glorified now as we respond to you uh, in repentance of sin, in repentance of, uh, of ignorance, obliviousness, as we come before you and, and experience uh, your grace, your mercy, your healing, touch in our lives, uh, as we give ourselves to you to be used for your glory, would you meet us here, Lord? And as we sing and as we respond to you, as we pray, uh, as we consider these questions, just meet us here by your spirit and, and minister to us. And Lord, would you be um, pleased with and honored by our response? We love you. We thank you for this time of responsive worship. We ask your blessing over it in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.